0: Beloved, open your Bibles with me to Isaiah 55 tonight. And we're going to read this entire chapter and look at it tonight. And I was thinking about it today when I was sitting in my office. Um, Actually, I was thinking about it Monday. Um, Isaiah 53, 54, and 55 are just amazing chapters of Scripture. And I'm not sure that there is another three consecutive chapters in the Old Testament that are as glorious as these three. Beginning with the description of the suffering servant and then the, the grand glory of all that he's accomplished, the future blessing, and then this awesome invitation to partake in the work of God's servant. So let's stand together and let's read these words together and then we'll pray and we'll dig into them tonight. This is the word of God Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. And eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me, here that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know. And a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it... "...bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy." And be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Amen. Let's pray together. You can be seated. Father, every every good gift that we could even conceive every good thing that we experience every blessing every treasure that we have that is truly treasure father it all comes from your hands it all comes because you are a god of infinite grace and mercy towards your people because you are a God whose word is impervious Lord God your word reigns supreme when you speak it is and no one can undo what you say you are an awesome God you are matchless in your in your glory and in your grandeur and in your majesty and you are matchless in your compassion and your steadfast love Lord, we we confess to you, like John was praying, we were wretched once. We were absent grace. Father, we were haters of righteousness. We despised everything good and glorious. We despised you. And you pursued us. You determined to save us. You determined to rescue us Even when, like rabid animals, we strained against your grace and strived against your goodness, thank you, Lord God, that you did not leave us to ourselves. If you had, we would be hopeless. But now we stand before you redeemed, Father, grateful for the life that we have in Christ, knowing with certainty that our sins have been atoned for in in completion, knowing that we stand clothed now in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that you are at work in our lives right now to make us more into the image of our Savior, certain, Lord God, that heaven awaits us when we draw our last breath and that the life that we will have with you and in you, even now, Lord, is a life of eternal joy joy and gladness and full satisfaction you are an awesome god and we bless you and we praise you tonight i pray lord god that as we look at this text tonight that it would have its full work in us i pray lord god that you would give me grace by your spirit to speak your word faithfully and accurately and with the unction of your holy spirit with power lord god with with power that your word would go forth and it would accomplish in each of our souls exactly what we need for it to accomplish, including my own. So come and be our teacher. Come and be, Lord, our preacher. Come and declare to us unchanging truth, unchanging, undefiled truth. We love you. And we bless you and we thank you for this time tonight. In the name of Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. You know, beloved, I mentioned this earlier, but everything that we've read last week in Isaiah 54 and everything that we read tonight in chapter 55 is entirely dependent upon the glorious work, the glorious saving work of God's one true servant, right? Prophesied in Isaiah 53, the Lord Jesus Christ, and flowing out of his triumphant suffering, right? And his resurrection from the dead, described in both stark and then in beautiful language, are these promises and invitations of these two chapters, Isaiah 54, you'll remember, is the big picture, right? It's the, it's the chapter that describes for us the future for all the people of God. It's the chapter that describes for us, you know, the the the, the future for everyone who's been rescued by the servant's selfless redemption and and, and 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 salvation, the experience of unparalleled joy, of steadfast and enduring love of God, the peace of and soul security that nothing can rival, right? Everything that we could ever hope for, but we could never have had apart from God's gracious intervention in our ruined lives. And now in Isaiah 55, the focus shifts, it focuses now to our personal response. It focuses on how we are to respond to and partake of the saving work of the servant. How we are to respond to this revelation of God's grace. What do we do? How should we be affected by what we have read, what we have heard? And so that's what we're going to look at tonight. And I've broken this chapter down really into four sections. Theologians typically break it down into two or three But I broke it down into four, and and I broke it down into these four sections. I broke it down into a section, the divine invitation, and then the urgent command, and then, praise God, the truth that God is not like us, and then the supremacy of God's word, okay? So I want us to look at these four sections tonight, and I want us to start, first of all, by looking again at this divine invitation. Look at verses one through five with me again. Incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. What an awesome invitation that is, isn't it? What a remarkable invitation from the Lord God. And I want us to really notice here some significant aspects, okay, of this divine invitation that comes to us. First of all, I want you to notice this. I want us to see that this invitation, beloved, it goes out to everyone, doesn't it? Doesn't it? It's a universal invitation. Every spiritually thirsty person, every spiritually needy person is invited to come to the waters, is invited to come and share in the blessing of the Lord, right? It's not for just the elite. It's not for those who consider themselves to be spiritually rich. It's not for them at all. Instead, it is for the spiritually bankrupt. It's for those who are in spiritual poverty. It's an invitation to freely receive the blessing of God. Freely receive it. And I think that's very interesting. I want you to think about this the gods of the world right the gods that are so often chased in our culture in our society those gods require a high price for what is ultimately dust and ashes don't they don't they but god offers abundant life and that for free god's word His invitation goes out to the spiritually destitute to freely receive the deepest needs of our hearts and our souls. And his invitation promises more than just subsistence, right? It promises more than just subsistence, just getting by. But instead it promises true satisfaction and abundance. You see that, in fact, in the way that This offer moves from water and then to wine and then to milk, right, and then to rich food. Then all of it's for free, right? Notice that this invitation to come and buy and eat is extended to somebody who has no money and that highlights, on one hand, our inability, right, our absolute poverty, the helplessness, you know, in us to purchase what God offers to us, right? It can only be freely received, and God... Praise God. He's too rich to sell his salvation to anyone. And even if he were to put a price upon it, we would all be too poor to pay. Isn't that true? But on the other hand, nothing can truly be had without payment, right? And so what we are forced to remember here, the implication is this, that the servant Isaiah Isaiah 53, he's the one that has paid the purchase price for us. This invitation is awesome. And in opening up this invitation, this promise of blessing, this promise of of exceeding abundance to the human soul, God exposes here the worthlessness of, of what fallen humanity often desires. If we were to ask people, if we were just to randomly choose 100 people out at Walmart, let's say, people would give a variety of different answers if we asked them about the nature of their need and the sort of banquet that would be necessary to, to, to suffice that need, wouldn't they? Wouldn't they? And that's the reason for these questions here. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? It's a very relevant question, isn't it? We often spend our lives, don't we, on that, you know, which is empty and without eternal value. We spend so much of our energy, so much of our life chasing things that cannot offer life. We labor to strive and to grasp for, for the things that the world says are valuable. We strive and we grasp for that which in the end is vain and slips through our fingers like so much sand. In fact, can I tell you what this invitation really does? Highlight the fundamental flaw of humanity. And our fundamental flaw is this. It's the failure to hear and obey God, isn't it? The failure to hear... And regard God's word as valuable and obey him. And so in order for us to come and and partake of this invitation of the Lord, the Lord tells us we must listen diligently. Listen diligently. And that's the idea of listening and straining with every effort that is in us. Right? It's the idea of, of putting all of our energies into hearing what it is that he has to say. He tells us that we need to incline our ears. That word, you know, when we think of, of of incline, maybe you think of like your lazy boy. You, you know, you put it in its incline and you lay back, right? Or or you climb up an incline, which is a tilt. You know, but the idea here is not that. The idea in Hebrew, this idea of inclining your ear, it's the idea of stretching your ear out. Now, some of us have big enough ears; we don't need to do that. But no, I'm kidding. The idea is though, is that you in a spiritual sense you stretch your ear to hear what it is that the Lord has to say, and then you hear Him. And the idea here is not just to, to have you know, your auditory nerves you know, stimulated and then have that tell your brain the, 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 the sounds that you've just heard. The idea here is to listen with attention and with interest to what the Lord speaks. And it's, and it's essential that we do because he says it's in that that we will have life, right? That your souls will live It's then that we'll be quickened first from spiritual death to spiritual life, right? And then we'll be revived from lethargy to vibrancy and be refreshed and we'll grow. The essential need of every soul clearly depicted here in this invitation is to listen to God, to hear and receive His Word, to truly consider and then to obey what He says to give our full and undivided attention to him. I think of Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is one of the greatest psalms ever penned, right? Psalm 119 is glorious. But I think specifically of Psalm 119, and beginning in verse 25, where the psalmist writes these words, he says, my soul clings to the dust, right? Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. You hear the desire there? Lord, I I want your word. I want to hear your word. I want you to teach me your precepts. I want you to, to, to teach me your law. I've chosen the way of faithfulness. I've set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies. Lord God, enlarge my heart to receive it all. Do you pray like that when you come to the word of God? Is that your earnest desire, right? That needs to be the heart with which we approach the, the, the truth of the living God. And then in this invitation, notice what God does. He promises entry, right? For those who are in spiritual poverty and in ruin, He promises them entry into the blessings of God's covenant along with David. Inclusion in the everlasting covenant like that which God made with, with David, God's steadfast and sure love. And here's what we need to see here. The David that's being spoken of here, beloved, is is the Davidic Messiah. It's David's offspring. It's the Lord Jesus Christ, the greater David. You remember that God had made irrevocable promises to David. He had promised that God's steadfast love or His grace would not depart from him and That David would have a descendant who would reign over over the, 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 the kingdom forever. And those promises are fulfilled in only one person, aren't they? They're fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. The true and faithful witness of the Lord. The eternal leader and commander of his people. And beloved, here's what the deal is. It's, 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 it's as God keeps His promise to David in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Davidic Messiah, it's in, that, it's in that keeping of God's promise that we receive the steadfast and the sure love of God in Christ, right? United to Christ. Ezekiel picks up this theme. In Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 23 and 24, he says, And I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David. Right? He's talking about the people of God. I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David. Now, obviously, David is dead by now. So who's he talking about? He's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. In this invitation, he tells us, look, through faith in Christ, we who were once paupers spiritually, we're included in the covenant, the eternal covenant of God's steadfast and sure love for David. We are included in spiritual Israel. And the picture is that as God effectually calls the nations to himself, the people will come running to spiritual Israel, to us, to learn the ways of David's God. As Christ bears witness to the power of God to deliver all people everywhere from the power of sin and of hell and of death, we witness to Him also and we participate with Him in the Messiah's work of building His eternal kingdom. As God glorifies Himself through His servant, we too are glorified in Him. And this promise... This invitation and promise, it is is made by, note this, the Holy One of Israel. The one who must be obeyed because he has all power and authority in his hands. And the one who must be loved because he has gone to the farthest lengths imaginable to redeem his people. And just one more thing before we leave these verses. I will often hear people say, not y'all, but like people that are spiritually ignorant. I will often hear people say that the God of the Old Testament is not the God of the New Testament. Right? You've probably heard that from somebody. Right? That, and it goes something like this. The claim is usually along these lines. The God of the Old Testament was only a God of wrath and judgment. But the God of the New Testament is the God of grace and love, right? I just want to say something. If this invitation to freely receive life to those who have rebelled against God's goodness and have ruined themselves with idols and who deserve only wrath and judgment, if that is not grace and love, then the words grace and love have no meaning. God gives us this gracious invitation. But then he also gives to us an urgent command. Now I want you to see this. Look at verses 6 and 7. There's this great invitation, and then the Lord says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Now I want us to think about this for a moment, okay? The Lord has come near to his people, right? He's come near to his people. And not only in the work of the servant that is prophesied here, God has been coming near to his people for the last 54 chapters, right, through the preaching of the prophet Isaiah in this book, right? God comes near when His truth is proclaimed. And it's plain, isn't it, that God is more than ready to be found? He's not playing peekaboo here. He wants to comfort the broken. He wants to forgive the sinner. He wants to deliver the bound. That much is certain. So then, what remains to be done for these blessings to be received? And the answer to that, from a human perspective, is we need to act on this invitation, We need to act on this invitation. It's vital that we act upon this invitation while the Lord may be found and while he is near. In other words, there's an urgency here. Not just to put it off until another day or consider these things maybe more deeply at another time. That is not the option here. It's respond now. Don't put this off. Don't wait. Right? That's the idea here. In fact, I want you to see that the way in which this invitation must be acted upon, it comes with the force of divine command. Okay? It comes with the force of divine command. God plainly says here, seek the Lord. And that word seek, that word seek in the Hebrew is not to look for something that's lost. That's not the idea. It's rather to come with diligence To where the Lord may be found. In the Old Testament, you know, it was the temple. That was where the Lord may be found, right? But it speaks of this commitment and determination and persistence and this longing for God's presence and for His fellowship to search for Him where He may be found. In His word. In His church, right? The command is call upon Him. And the idea of that word call is to pour out your heart in earnest supplication. It's the idea of acknowledging him in worship and lifting up your soul to him and appealing to him from your need. Knowing that God will hear you, certain that he will not turn away a sincere and earnest, heartfelt, faith-filled plea. Together, that these commands to seek and to call, they speak of orienting the whole of your life to the Lord Himself as of greatest importance, right? That's not just a commandment to the prophet. That's not just a commandment to the apostle. That's not just a commandment to, you know, the preacher. That's a commandment to every single one of us. And concurrent with those commands to seek and call, is the command, let the wicked forsake his way. Let the wicked forsake his way. That word forsake, forsake? Beloved, it describes a decisive break. It, it, it describes a, a, a determined being done with sin. It, it, it describes this turning away from that which offends the holiness of God and to renounce and to abandon everything that displeases Him. And moreover, the call here is to forsake unrighteous thoughts, to refuse to entertain ideas or fashion plans or, or mull over you know these assertions and propositions that only issue forth in wickedness. We've got to reject everything that would stand in the way. It calls for a complete, not a partial repentance. Can I tell you what? When you read the Old Testament, here's what you find out. One of the biggest problems, one of the things that hamstringed Israel and Judah over and over and over again was an incomplete repentance that never resulted in a full and a complete return to the Lord. You notice that? Do you notice that? That's why when you read through the succession of kings, you'll have one, right, who who did as his father David did, you know, and maybe tore down the high places and did this and did that, but always left something behind. And then the next king arises, right? And he does evil in God's sight. And he, you know, continued in the footsteps of his father so-and-so, Right? Incomplete repentance results in an incomplete return to the Lord, which means no return to the Lord at all. Not of any lasting significance. And that is the next command return to the Lord, right? Seek Him, call upon Him, forsake your sin, and then gladly return and submit the whole of your life to the Holy God. Return to Him with a whole, not an undivided heart. Return to Him with a submissive heart. With a humble and a teachable heart. With a responsive heart. Again, these aren't inconsequential suggestions. They're commands. And the good news, beloved, is that when sinners sincerely turn to the Lord... What we'll find, what we find always, what we find is not righteous anger in retributive justice. What do we find? We find compassion and multiplied pardon, don't we? Don't we? God will have compassion. He will abundantly pardon us. And he can do so precisely because of the servant. Because the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors and yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That's why we, the wicked and sinful, could be forgiven and treated as though we were righteous and we can be restored to his presence and even when we sin now, when we come in humility and true repentance and confession, can be restored once again. See, the problem is never and, And I've heard, you know, folks will say this. The problem is never, you know, they'll say, well, I gave God a try. What does that even mean? I gave God a try. The problem is never that someone sincerely turns to the Lord and then finds that God rejects them. That's not the problem. The problem is never that someone turns to the Lord sincerely and then find that God rejects them. The problem is that he or she fails to return to the Lord and therefore is rejected. It's not that God is hidden and has to be found. But in earnestness, we must turn to him and heed his voice while he waits to be gracious. And I hope you see the implications of that, beloved. I hope you see it. If God is offering eternal life, if he's offering abundant life, right, if he's ready to shower upon someone, the blessings of his love and affection, his forgiveness and his fellowship, renewal and refreshment, if all he commands is that you turn from sin to him, really turn to him, then it's only that person's fault if they will not turn. It's not anyone else's. It's theirs. Yours if you refer, refuse to. And the fact is, all these things can be said not only of salvation, but also of sincere repentance and return from sin to the joy of forgiveness and fellowship, right? It could also be said of of revival and renewal. It could also be said of the joy of abundant life in the Lord. Mercy and pardon are freely available to us because they have been paid for in full by God's true servant. So seek and call and forsake and return. Respond to the invitation. An invitation that seems Almost too good to be true. But it's not. It's not too good to be true because God is not like us. God is not like us. Look at verses 8 and 9 again. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God says, I want you to understand this. I want you to understand why I can give you this invitation, why I can command you to respond like this. Look, The reason that God has acted to provide salvation and abundant life for us who deserve the opposite, the reason that he revives and he renews souls that stumble is because he is not like us. And that might be the biggest no-brainer ever, right? God isn't like us. He's not like us in a myriad of ways. He's not like us in his glory. He's not like us in his holiness. He's not like us in his majesty. He's not like us in his righteousness or his justice or his power or his love or his grace or his mercy. There are an infinite number of ways that the Lord is intrinsically not like us. Just infinitely greater than us. Amen. Right? But the two ways... That the, Lord, the, 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 the Lord highlights two specific aspects here in which He is not like us, His thoughts and His ways. His thoughts and His ways. As the heavens are infinitely and immeasurably higher than the earth, so are God's ways and His thoughts from ours. And that ought to put us in our place. God, listen, listen, God doesn't act always like we think He should. God does not think as we think. And so, for us to put God under any obligation that He should act or think as we do is the highest form of arrogant delusion, is it not? Is it not? The assertion, you know, if I were God, I would. That holds no water with the Lord of hosts. None. And I'm glad it doesn't. Because if God acted as we act, and if he thought as we thought, real forgiveness and grace would be an impossibility. Wouldn't it? Our ways and our thoughts have been perverted by sin. In fact, if we're honest, here's how that statement, if I were God, here's how that ends. If I were God, I would do X, Y, or Z, and I would make an irresolvable shipwreck of my life, my soul, and everybody around me. It is especially because God is not like us that we have any hope of salvation or spiritual renewal or revived souls or abundant life or anything good, right? I mean, look, it would, it would seem that God would be unable to offer restoration to wicked people and that it would be futile to seek the Lord as, this, as the prophet is urging if, if God were like us, but he's not. His ways are, and thoughts are higher as this wonder of grace proves. His ways are above our ways because he delights to forgive and his thoughts are above our thoughts because his grace transcends all that stands between us and him. He's the one who thought to take to himself to bridge the great gulf that we had caused between us and the holy God. And his ways and his thoughts infinitely and immeasurably higher than our own are expressed by the supremacy of His Word. Look at this last section, and read with me verses ten through thirteen. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it to bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall My Word be that goes out from My mouth; it shall not return to Me empty. But it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Here's what God's saying. What I've said to you about the certainty of pardon offered to sinners, it's absolutely dependable. It is absolutely true. And even more than that, all that God has said is reliable and established, immovable and certain, which I told you I think either last week or the week before, is the root of the Hebrew word for truth. Whether it's about himself and his promises are about the nature of reality and the foolishness of idolatry. Or about the human dilemma and the offer of grace. All of it's true. And he uses here this, this the, the fruitfulness, this picture of the fruitfulness of the rain and the snow upon the earth as an example. Their power to bring forth crops and seed to magnify the supremacy of his word. Think about it. In the ancient Near East, man, rain spelled the difference between life and death. Right, It did. If the rains came at the appropriate time, you could hope for good crops, which meant enough food for the coming year. And of at least equal importance, you could hope for seed to plant the crop for the next year. But if the rains didn't come, not only was the crop lost, but so was the seed lost. And then you were staring famine dead in the face. God's Word, God's Word, it is fruitful and powerful. It is unique in its character. It is active. In fact, I want you to see how in these verses the Lord highlights four characteristics of His Word. First, He highlights the power of his word, that it does not return empty, that he carries with it divine might, that God's word contains within it the very power to do what it commands. Right? Then second, the purpose of God's word. It accomplishes everything that the Lord intends. God's word accomplishes exactly what God designs and nothing that he doesn't design. Then third, the sufficiency of his word. How it succeeds in the purposes for which God sent it. The word of God doesn't need any help. The Word of God needs no help because it comes from the Sovereign Lord Himself and is infused with the power of the Holy Spirit. It's infused with power and purpose and sufficiency. So God's Word's not in vain. It's not untrustworthy. It's not lacking in might. It is God's chosen instrument to achieve His purposes. It reveals His thoughts and His ways. It establishes His plans. It gives voice to His promises. And it's powerful to achieve what it says and all those three the power and the the purpose and the sufficiency of god's word they all combine to establish the fourth thing about god's word and that's its supremacy it magnifies the name of the lord and it stands as everlasting truth look at this it says there for you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, the word will, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Here's what he's saying. God's word, which once spoke the universe into existence, it's gone forth again. And it's lost none of its ancient power. Nothing can frustrate it. Nothing can divert God's word from its course. There will be a new creation. There will be a new world. There will be a new people characterized by joy and peace. And nothing can stop what God has spoken. Those who respond to God's invitation will experience joy and peace indescribable. In fact, the idea here when he says, you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace, the idea there is that we will quite literally experience a new exodus from death into life. When God's people turn to him, when they listen to him, and his word does his work in them, joy and peace are always the result. This picture of joy is... It's so great that even the mountains, right, in this picture, in the hills and the trees of the field, they join in. And then there's this mention of the cypress and the myrtle. Why that? Here's why. Because they're evergreens. Because they're alive all the time. And the picture is that death and the curse have been replaced by abundant and eternal life. And the New Exodus community... This new Exodus community, the people of God, brought from death to life, recipients of joy and peace, and the glorious transformed creation will together declare the glory and the renown of God forever. We are the testimony to the power of God's word and to the glory of his name. Even now, even now, as we await the consummation of this, We exalt in the nature and the character of the Lord. We exalt in his grace and his mercy. We exalt in his free invitation to life and his call to the simplicity of repentance and faith his guarantee of compassion and forgiveness, the certainty of his ways, the power of his word, our rescue from alienation from God unto fellowship, our, our, our rescue from death to life, from old to the new, from scarcity to abundance. We extol his name for all these things now and we will do so forever because nothing can stop what God has spoken. Charles Spurgeon said, God's word is an irrevocable word man has to eat his word sometimes and unsay his say he would perform his engagement but he cannot it's not that he is unfaithful but rather that he is unable now this is never so with god his word never returns to him void go find ye the snowflakes winging their way like white doves back to heaven Go, find the drops of rain rising upward like diamonds flung up from the hand of a mighty man to find a lodging place in the cloud from which they fell. Until the snow and the rain return to heaven and mock the ground which they promised to bless, the word of God shall never return to him. Let's pray together. Father, all of our hope, all of it, rests in You and in Your Word and in the Word made flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the power of the Holy Spirit through your word Lord we are a people father who desperately need to be shaped by the truth of your word in every way father our thinking and our desires our will our feelings our perception, our security, our strength. Lord, we need you and your word to be the very anchor of our souls. And I pray that it would be. I pray, Lord God, that we would hear your commanding voice in your word. We would hear your comforting voice. Your commanding and and awesome voice. Your soothing voice. Strengthening voice. Lord God, that we would hear the voice that commands the cedars and breaks them. Your word, that your voice that brings forth the deer's young and your voice that is life eternal to those who hear. Thank you, Lord God, for this incredible invitation. Thank you for this invitation that Father, not only results in real salvation, true salvation, our exodus out of this fallen world, this fallen humanity, our exodus out of Adam and into Christ. But Lord, this invitation, this command, that when we receive it, promises renewal and refreshment and revival and Lord God, abundant life in you. So make us now a praying people. Lord, a people that will call upon you in accordance with your promises. A people that will call upon you in confidence, Lord God, that you hear us. A God that we know can be found. A God that we know is near with us even now. Thank you for this time tonight. Thank you for this time in your word. May it be refreshment to our souls, I pray. In Jesus' name.